to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host, and today we're actually going to uh, have a second conversation with Jim Farrell from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Jim is one of the partners in the Farrell Growth Group, and uh, Jim, how are things going? Oh, very good, uh, Paul. Always good to visit with you. We're, we're having a, a better year than a year ago from the standpoint of the mergers and acquisitions part of our business. Uh, we've got some deals in the hopper right now, and a year ago it was kind of slow as we were coming out of COVID. So uh, we work primarily as you and I were visiting in the ag retail sector, or more commonly to your listeners, probably crop protection companies uh, and co-ops are people that we work with. Uh, with our business, we do a agronomy benchmarking business for a number of the members of our organization. Uh, it's a membership group. And we also do peer-to-peer uh, meetings with our various members from Canada and uh, across the U.S. So it's a, a diverse group. And right at the moment, like I said, uh, we've got a couple of mergers or sales, I should say business sales, uh, that are in the works. And oftentimes uh, they take a while to Yep. come together, but uh, we're hopeful it'll be a pretty good year for the company. And I'm guessing that the valuation or the sales price on, on these mergers or sales, I'm guessing they're based on some multiple of EBITDA. Is that correct? Uh, for the audience out there, EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. Um, it's sort of your net income before all those items, and then you apply a multiple uh, so let's say that uh, your EBITDA is a million dollars and the multiple is five. You're going to sell that business for five million dollars, and then, but that then means if you have debt, you're going to have to pay off that debt with that uh, uh, with that uh, cash and so on. So is is that typically how they're valued in that industry, or is it a multiple of sales? I, I was just curious how they typically value those uh, those type of businesses. Well. There, there certainly is uh, a uh, EBITDA f- a factor that enters into the value of businesses, but uh, the way that our team would go about it, however, is different than that. We would use a discounted cash flow method more so, okay. Okay. Uh, uh, taking a look at the current business, where you expect the business to go, look at future uh, expected income streams, and uh, bringing that back to a current value. So. There's a variety of ways of uh, putting together evaluation. You've also got hard assets. Uh, you've got inventory to value and, and so on. So um, they're typically, uh, you'll hear an EBITDA number when somebody buys a business. And frankly, I belong to a, a group called the Association for Corporate Growth, which is a uh, national, somewhat international group that uh, focuses on mergers and acquisitions and business business uh, to business work in that category. And the EBITDA numbers or the number you uh, discussed there, Paul, have gone up significantly since we've taken interest rates down to zero uh, yep. at yep. reserve. You know, they, they've climbed up to things that we would have considered unheard of 10 years ago. Uh, but when you're looking at it from a discounted cash flow method, you're actually looking at the value of the business itself. And if I'm buying it, 
when can I expect a return? That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. I mean, I think uh, certainly as the Federal Reserve, and we'll talk about the Ag Symposium here in a second, but as the Federal Reserve continues to increase rates, and as we're taping this, the the latest inflation number just came out at 8.6%, which I think is what a 41-year uh, high. I think the last time we were this high was in December of, of 1981. And Jim, you and I definitely uh, have enough gray hair to remember uh, when those inflation numbers, when actually 8% wasn't that bad. You know, there was times when it was even worse than that back then. So, uh, uh, and and hopefully we don't see interest rates as high as they were back with Volcker, you know, pushing it up to 12, 14, 16, 18%. But, uh, you know, that, that could happen. Uh, it could. I, uh, I would agree with you that I don't think we will see that happen. Uh, I think we're probably going to see something a bit more moderate. But uh, personally, you know, just as I look at it, uh, 3 to 4% at the Federal Reserve discount rate window uh, would not be out of line, which uh, I'm not sure where they'll end up. You know, it's all going to be dependent on what the numbers tell them as far as inflation goes and when inflation comes back down to something more manageable in their 2% target. Uh, but, you know, a 4% interest rate, uh, Paul, just 12 years ago would have been considered normal. Yeah. You know, 4% <laughs> discount rate. Uh, coming back up to that now would seem excessive when you're coming off of 50 basis points. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, but, you know, so it's going to have an impact on things. But nonetheless, I, I don't see it as excessive. What's interesting to me, though, Paul, is I reflect back on, uh, and you're right, I, I graduated college in, in the mid-1970s and right in the heart of a bull market in ag. But the bull market had already peaked. We didn't know it had already peaked. Uh, you know, hindsight is usually a great teacher. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, by 1980, it had peaked. Uh, probably it peaked in 78 and 79, and we just didn't recognize it. But we're sitting on top of a bull market. We're sitting on top of high inflation right now, inflation numbers we haven't seen for a long time, and we've got an increasing interest rate uh, environment right now coming out of the Federal Reserve, pushing interest rates on all loans higher. Uh, last time we saw that was probably in the 1970s, late 70s and early 80s, when we saw all three of those things come together. So it's interesting from that standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm 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 just curious uh I guess it's the CPA nerd in me that uh so on a, for the audience out there a, a discounted cash flow. So what you're doing is when you're looking at buying a, a farm input or a crop input uh, uh company, you're going to make some assumptions as far as growth, uh, net income over what a 10-15 year period and then you'll discount it back at a certain interest rate. Is is that effectively what you're doing? Uh, uh, maybe you could just describe that a little bit for the audience. Well, I think you did a good job of describing it. You're going to take future cash flow estimates and uh, you're going to take them back to current value of uh, money earned in the future, basically, uh, and put a value on it from that. And, and that that can become a starting point for the sale of a business. It doesn't necessarily mean that's where it gets sold. Uh, you know, if, it's like anything else. If there's enough demand, it may sell higher than what uh, is implied with that calculation. But, and the calculation can be very extensive uh, and can take quite a bit of work, especially in an ag retail business where you have inventory uh, on yeah. hand. 
Uh, you've got uh, carry on, on products that are out in the field that haven't been paid yet. Uh, you may have some money loaned out to local farm operators who uh, plan to pay at harvest time. Uh, you've got a lot of factors. You've also got rolling stock, your, your yep. machinery. Uh, you've got buildings and assets, uh, condition of the assets and so on. Um, so all of that enters into that calculation of what a business is worth. Um, I, I hesitate to get too deep into it because we actually have experts within our company that do that, who could really do a nice job of explaining it probably better than I can. So hopefully that overview gives you and your, and your listeners uh, a broad view of how a business would be valued in that situation. Yeah, and uh, you know, and and personally, back oh, this is now twenty, almost twenty years ago, not quite twenty years ago. Um, well, a little bit more than that when I first started, but I was act actually a part owner of a plastic packaging and thermoforming business, and we ended up selling it out to a, you know, to a private equity group, and uh, so you know, we went through all those calculations, and I was actively involved in the. Adjusted EBITDA and the working capital adjustments and all that, so it, it can get a little bit convoluted. Yes, yes, it can. And uh, but uh, there are people in the business, like the folks that work for us, that uh, can put that number together and, and support it, uh, yep. which is what you want. You want to be able to go to the person who's considering selling the business and say, "This really is a, a number that makes sense." And then the person that's buying the business, uh, they need to understand that number as well. So uh, it's it's a lengthy process when you sell a business. Uh, sometimes it's uh, not simply selling uh, bricks and mortar. Sometimes it's selling a lifetime's work. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little like a farmer selling a farm. That that's a different process, but it gets it can get that emotional. Well, it's uh, for a lot of those entrepreneurs. That's that's their baby. That's almost more their family. Than their family is uh, because you know the 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 human family grows up, goes to college, moves away, has kids, and I guess you create grandchildren. Which uh, since now I have grandchildren, it's almost more important than the children. Um, Actually, I would have skipped the children and gone directly to grandchildren. <laughs> but anyway, that's just me. Yeah, but then you know, like I say, it's that baby, and and I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that they just cannot sell that business because uh, you know they they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. Yes, and that's very true. Uh, and and it's like I say, it's it's an emotional decision, just like selling a farm. I mean, I I spent my career. You know, working either as as a farmer or or working as uh, a representative of the folks who own the farms, and uh, you know, even if they're a couple generations removed from having lived on the farm, it still gets very emotional. And yep. a business, a business that was started or has been in a family, uh, I think, always carries emotions. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you see? I'm I'm just curious. Uh, any trends in the farm input that uh, that there are certain segments that are probably more let's see more in demand or certain parts of the country are more in demand or less in demand i i was just curious if 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 you have any uh, guidance on that uh not as i think about that question paul uh you know, all of the ag retail sectors are are going to have a good year this year because demand, you know, is strong. Prices are up. Uh, commodity prices are up. Uh, it, it's going to be a good year all the way around. Uh, so we're not 
We're not seeing uh, more in one area than another. I mean, obviously, as you know, the West Coast with the uh, issues with water, uh, that's creating a little bit of havoc occasionally with some of the ag retailers out there as there are acres that maybe can't be planted uh, to the high value crops that they were at one time, things like that. Uh, and that's certainly impacting it. The ag retail business, like all of agriculture, has gone through significant consolidation over the last 15 or 20 years. In fact, as our company has been involved uh, in quite a number of uh, smaller independent agricultural retail operations selling uh, as they consolidate. And yep. so there's fewer players. I think what you will see in the future is it's going to be a lot farther between the ag retailers in the future. Uh, you know, they're... I, I was recently at a Federal Reserve Agricultural Symposium, and there was a gentleman there from the grain industry who was talking about the lack of labor that they can hire in the country to manage, even like their grain elevators, and that in 2021, they said they had a grain elevator, I believe it was in Kansas, as I recall, that was operated during harvest totally remotely, nobody on site. Mm. And, you know, he, he said that uh, it actually worked very well, wasn't something that they had necessarily planned to do, but uh, COVID and lack of, you know, excess labor in the rural areas, uh, that was the way they had to operate it. So, you know, farmers had to come in and, and apparently test their own loads and unload. <laughs> their, you know, I'm not sure how that all went, but uh, it was certainly interesting uh, to hear him talk about that. So. I'm I'm guessing they might have had some cameras around just to make sure that the farmer is doing what they were doing. But then most farmers are trustworthy anyway. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be curious because, uh, uh, you know, if you're on a on if you have your own grain operation on the farm, a lot of it can be done by the person that's bringing in the truckload, you know, so uh, I, I think a lot of farmers are probably used to that now. Well, if you think about the the routine, you pull in, you get scaled, they pull a sample, you drive over the scale and you go somewhere and somebody pulls the uh, the end gate or opens up the chute, so depending yeah. on what you're driving but uh, or hauling in. And, uh, you know, as long as <laughs> you've got, you know, the elevators working to, to take the grain up off the uh, dumps, you know, that kind of thing, I, I guess it could work. So that was the first I'd heard of that. So I thought it was really kind of interesting uh, because labor, I, I would say we hear that in our ag retail sector as much as anything. Labor is a, is a limiting condition and labor is getting much more expensive. Uh, yep. Yeah. So talking about $15 an hour minimum wage, I, I know several of our customers that we work with that would say, you know, they've been over $15 an hour on starting pay, uh, you know, even for nurse truck drivers for several years, uh, just yeah. trying to get people hired. So, uh, you know, costs, costs in that sector are going up uh, fairly rapidly, probably, probably as rapidly as I've seen in my, my history in business. Yeah. yeah. Well, in our area, we have a, a matter of fact, where my grain will be going to is a fairly good size uh, marketing cooperative and, and, uh, on the side of their elevator as I'm driving into town, there's a huge banner that says hiring now, starting pay $16 an hour. And that's just for the person to do a little bit of summer work at the at the local elevator. So and McDonald's yep. in our area is uh, is $18 an hour. So uh, yeah, you're, you're not going to um, uh, 
that genie's out of the bottle, so to speak. Uh, the national minimum wage of seven thirty-five or whatever it is, that that's not even a minimum wage. So no, no it's, it's fairly, fairly irrelevant. I, you know, I don't. We don't. We're old enough. We don't hire babysitters anymore for kids, obviously. Although we act as babysitters occasionally, and I think yeah. I'm going to start charging my kids for the babysitting services. I hear some babysitters <laughs> earn as much as twenty dollars an hour. <laughs> I, I can tell you because my kids are in Phoenix and 20 would be on the low side. You know, you're, oh, wow. you're closer to $30 an hour, I think now, if if you get yeah, a good that, one. That's, that's nearly double what I started working for in my professional career <laughs> in, <laughs> in 1986. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, Jim, let's, let's cycle over to the Kansas City um, Federal Reserve Ag Symposium that was held down in, in Kansas City. What, roughly about two, three weeks ago now? Is that about right? I'm, I'm trying to think it was about in that time span, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was uh, it was in May, um, and it was the first in-person one they've had in a couple of years. Uh, they've been hosting these since probably, oh man, 2009, 10, maybe 2008 even. So uh, generally well attended, and it was well attended again this year. They, they held the numbers down a little bit, still doing a little bit of social distancing, I guess, you know, in, the, in these in-person meetings, but uh, had a really good agenda. Uh, that meeting was on, it was titled Help Wanted, and it was a meeting that was focused on labor issues in the agricultural sector. Uh, there was a very good mix of presenters, uh, uh, fairly heavy out of the West Coast and the vegetable production areas and the permanent plantings, but it also represented the Midwest and across to the East uh, as well. And there was even a little bit of discussion on uh, from Canada and what's going on in Canada. Uh, you know, so it was it was interesting from that standpoint. Uh, a few things I picked up that I thought you might be interested in. Uh, you know, this this came up a couple of times from a couple of different presenters that the current mix of agricultural workers, seasonal ag workers in the U.S., uh, you know, 65 percent of them are foreign born uh, today. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a very high percentage. Uh, you know, I saw numbers anywhere from 26 to 33 or 4 percent are American uh, farm workers. Uh, otherwise, we're relying on, on uh, you know, foreign born workers, whether they're coming in under a, a seasonal contract or whether they're uh, you know, here on a green card or whatever the situation might be. Um, one of the things that came up early in the, in the discussion, Paul, was the lack of seasonal workers coming into the U.S. has you know, really, really become an issue. Uh, one of the producers that was there that is more in the L.A. area or the Bakersfield area of uh, production talked about uh, the uh, decline in the number of workers they were able to get from 2019 to 2020. It was it was quite significant, uh, or until 2021, I'm sorry. Uh, that decline in the number of workers coming across as seasonal workers, you know, was pretty significant. <clears throat> so, you know, some of the conclusions I think that came from some of that discussion is that it's inevitable that we're going to see more production move to Mexico. Uh, yeah. We're already seeing that. It's it's being driven by labor uh, to a large degree, and in part, it's being delivered or uh, driven by 
water shortage or lack of water in some of the heavy uh, growing areas, especially in the California Valley. So a couple of the things that came up in the discussion, uh, you know, the H2A program, that's a seasonal worker program only. Uh, they brought up a number of the restrictions and challenges. They said it it's a process one has to start at least 90 days, maybe 120 days before you need the workers. Yep. And you have to specify a specific date when you're going to get the workers. So if you can imagine I'm growing strawberries and I have to guess when those strawberries are going to be ready to be picked because yeah. when the workers uh, come in, uh, whether I'm ready for them or not, I have to house them, feed them, take care of them, provide transportation until the strawberries are ready. And, and you know, there's not any option there to, to vary that time frame when they come in to work your particular field. Uh, also, uh, you know, it's, it's seasonal, so they can't be there all year long. Another thing that came up I thought was interesting is that they said there's fewer next generation migrant farm workers coming across into the U.S. as well. So it used to be a generational thing, but, you know, apparently there's enough labor opportunities uh, south of the border that they're, you know, they're not seeing that uh, next generation of migrant workers coming over. Uh, which, of course, is also a red flag. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's quite a number of, of issues that revolve around the seasonal workers and the shortage that we seem to, to run, and COVID actually accentuated that. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of California and the West Coast, uh, uh, you know, those three states, Oregon, Washington, California, now either have full overtime for workers or phasing in full overtime for workers where, you know, they're going to get time and a half after 40 hours or more than eight hours a day or whatever it might be. Plus they get paid for, if they're on the piecemeal, they get paid for rest breaks, they get paid for uh, lunch uh, breaks and so on. So, uh, you know, the cost of labor, as we've already said, is just, I won't say it's gone through the roof, but it's certainly dramatically gone up over the last three to five years. Well, when you're facing a shortage of labor to start with, and then you start getting those types of restrictions, and of course, there's even been discussion of cutting the work week down below 40. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, those of us that have spent our careers in agriculture know that when things are ready, things are ready. Uh, and then there's days when there's nothing to do because there are very little to do because, you know, it's raining or whatever the situation is, the crop is just not ready to be harvested. So uh, it's... It's uh, kind of a situation where you've got folks making rules that don't fully understand what they're making rules about, I'm afraid, in some of these situations. But the, uh, you know what I mean? When you take a look at the workers, another statistic that kind of came up that caught my attention, looking back to 2005, and we talk about the H2A, there's also an H2B program, but yep. not used as much. That's a full year uh, worker, and those are very limited. So the H-2A workers in 2005, they had 50,000 H-2A workers in this country. 2021, they had 310,000. Yep. And they said agriculture takes 43% of those. The other issue that happens with your H-2A workers is that they come in and they get started in agriculture, but they find a construction job, they don't come back to ag. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ag is entry level. And yeah. if they can find anything else, they're going to move on. So when was the last time you had your house roofed? Uh, you know, uh, we just had a hailstorm here. So I've been thinking about that. It's, it's almost all going to be uh, foreign-born workers, uh, yeah. you know, 
working on those crews today. And they may well have started out coming in as H-2A farm workers. And, and it's sort of interesting, you know, and I would say in the more in the permanent crop, the vegetable side, most of those workers are coming from the historically Hispanic area, Mexico, Guatemala, whatever it might be. Yep. But I know for my farm clients that I have or the farm friends I have, let's say in the Midwest, not necessarily dairies, but, you know, the the uh, the grain operations that do bring in H2A, they're almost all from South Africa. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's just interesting, the mix of countries and, and where they're going and what type of crop they're working on. Yes. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, the the whole, you know, dairy came up a lot. It's uh, now that you mentioned that, Paul, and and that is a real issue with H2A workers, because if I need 20 workers to manage my dairy or 15 workers, whatever, I need them there all year long. I don't need them for nine months and then they're right. gone. <laughs> so, you know, that that creates its own issues. Uh, you've got a constantly shifting workforce. If you can imagine having to train someone to take care of your livestock and, and get them well trained, and then they have to go back to wherever they started from uh, and you won't see them again until next year. So uh, there, there are just lots of challenges. You know, and the challenges aren't insurmountable, unfortunately. They could actually probably be solved fairly easily. Uh, there's just no appetite to solve them. So. Yeah. Yeah. And there was we, some discussion about that too, you know, that, you know, the last time there was any kind of uh, uh, effort to to make a change to these rules that actually got passed has been many, many years ago, so. Yeah, we, we were sort of talking about that a little bit offline. Uh, you know, I had mentioned that uh, I've had discussions with some of my friends that who I think are fairly rational on all things politics almost, but if you bring up immigration, you know, they, they're just, so focused this way and then you bring in logic not that you're necessarily for or against their position but you bring in logic that doesn't quite um dovetail with their view they want nothing to do with it you know it's just like uh well you know that that doesn't matter i'm not going to even think about that here's my viewpoint and i'm not going to change it and i have a feeling that that's really the reality in congress we have too many that one way or another you're just not going to get any traction well you know, I, I agree with you on that, and I and I do believe that our political parties don't necessarily have much appetite to fix it. Uh, it's a little like, say, maybe making a change to Social Security. There are some common things that could happen, but you know, I if I'm if I'm on the one side of the equation, I can use that against the other party, and the other party can use that to fire yeah. up their base against this party. So you know, solving the issue takes away issues we can run on. So it's not it's not politically palatable to them, I don't think, in, in that regard. So it uh, doesn't mean it's hopeless, uh, but it it doesn't seem to, to be going anywhere. And like I, I told you, Paul, it was interesting to me. There was a, a really interesting book written about uh, five years ago or six years ago. Uh, a friend of mine who worked in the grain industry, uh, who saw the speaking circuit a lot, uh, a really sharp individual here in Omaha that I've known for a long time. He mentioned the book to me, it's called Empty Planet. And I would suggest it's a book worth reading for all of us involved in agriculture because it starts to talk about uh, some of the numbers that get bandied about as to world population, where the population growth is gonna take place uh, and so on. 
And it looks, it's not political. There really isn't anything political about the book. It's pretty statistically driven, but, uh, and it's well written enough to be interesting to read. But what they talk about is as countries get industrialized, like the, you know, Japan, United States, China, Europe, European countries, that people uh, have fewer kids for a variety of reasons. Uh, The reason my family had six uh no besides being catholic uh had to do with labor yep and families had big families uh because of labor deeds uh on the farm especially back when 90 percent of us lived on a farm yeah and so those those labor needs drove a lot of population growth and as they move into the city lifestyle changes uh occur and they're less likely to have big families uh, you know, the, the average family size in the U.S. has dropped below two. Uh, currently, uh, we're producing 1.6 to 1.7 children per uh, female of childbearing age, if you will, which is a commonly used statistic to show where your population is going, uh, which is well below what we need just to stay even. And we need to be at 2.1 just to break even as far as having enough workers to replace workers who are retiring or moving out of the workforce. And so the simple reality is we either automate our way uh, into the future or we figure out a way to bring in more labor, uh, skilled labor that we can use in this country. And not really sure which direction we'll go, but, uh, you know, statistically, uh, that was reported at this meeting. Uh, we're, we're below replacement numbers now in the U.S., yeah. Yeah, I I uh, attended another conference with an economist there, and and he brought up the same thing. You you, you want to funnel, but you want to sort of be an upside down funnel. You know, like Mexico. Mexico is still, you know, they have more than two. You know, they have a wide base at the bottom, and then a, a smaller base up at top. Whereas Japan, like I say, or you had mentioned, smaller base at the bottom, not a lot of young people, and a whole lot of old older people up top. So. Uh, yep. Um, yep. At, at the symposium, did they talk about mechanization a, a, a fair amount or not? Uh, it would depend on which part we were looking at, but yes, it did. Uh, the one of the vegetable producers who you know has been working with some automation uh, companies said that uh, he was talking with this one company, and they had machines that they could that they could create that would automatically harvest strawberries. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, they were working on trying to make them uh, automated so that you could, you might have to have five or six of them out there to kind of replace. And he said, if you can do that, he said, you don't need five or six of them. He said, why don't you make a machine big enough? I can put one guy on and you can go out and drive it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. so The self-driving was, uh, you know, not necessarily what the focus needed to be on from his perspective anyway. Uh, the idea that you can automate the process and replace labor, but you don't have to replace all labor by having it be a robot. If you follow my, my, yeah, yeah. We also talked on trucking, you know, we had a, a, a large trucking company represented there and the speaker from that company or the president of that company, you know, talked about, you know, the trucking shortage and said since 2020, the four higher trucker numbers have gone down 12.4% in the U.S. And in his opinion, he said the estimated current driver shortage is at 80,000 drivers short. Mm. And he said there's a certain amount of that, he said, that uh, has uh, bled off to Amazon or FedEx. Uh, and he said a lot of that has to do with over-the-road truckers being gone for two and three weeks at a time. 
They can work at Amazon and FedEx, get a good pay and be home at night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he talked about automated trucking lanes and he said it's going to be a long time from his perspective. Uh, he did not see that coming soon. Um, we also had a uh, large equipment manufacturer that was represented there and talked about the size of machines uh, and talked about, you know, next generation, larger machines, but also made the realistic comment that there is a limit to how big machines can get. Yeah. It's not a limit of technology. It's a limit of how we can deal with these machines. We haven't got roads big enough. We haven't yeah. got infrastructure big enough. Can't get them over bridges. Um, so there is definitely a limit to how big it can get. And, you know, his prediction would have been more automation uh, that we're going to see. And I think, you know, in the, in the vegetable fields, uh, in the permanents, uh, like in your area with your tree crops, uh, I think we definitely are going to, we're going to see a mix of, of way more automation to replace labor. Uh, plus, I think we're going to see a mix, especially in those in those crops, of it moving into more favorable uh, growing areas uh, or more favorable labor areas. So, uh, we're going to see a shift out of the U.S. I think on on some of those crops, uh, much against what the consumer preference seems to be. I think that's what's what's that seems to be what's happening. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, yeah, I was. We were talking offline a little bit, you know, last year out in our area, we had a drought, I think, from February 15th to August 15th. We had no measurable rain. Maybe we got a one one hundredth of an inch somewhere. And and, you know, since February 15th of this year, I'm going to say we haven't gone six days without having rain. So, I mean, it's it's but, you know, when you're dealing with the wheat crop, you know, wheat definitely loves rain and. I am predicting that we may have some actual producing wheat fields out in this area that might hit 200 bushels an acre this year with no irrigation. You know, wow. I, I think the crop is looking that good. So, uh, and on top of it, the price is 12 bucks a bushel, so or 11 bucks a bushel. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the wheat growers out here are going to do just fine. Oh, I uh, yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. We do. We used to joke with our wheat producers when when I was at Farmers National that. You typically had to lose a crop eight to ten times a year before you harvested a good crop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, people, I, people worry I, about that wheat crop in the minute it gets in the ground until they drive the combine through it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember like 35, 40, 40, I think 40 some years ago, my my uncle and cousin, they had a field and uh, and a hail came through and it was probably around february or march and the adjuster came out and said oh, you got 35 percent damage well all it really did was properly thin out the weed and then the weather was perfect and they ended up getting like 135 bushels to the acre plus 35 percent damage on top of it so uh, you know <laughs> yeah weed is very very tough to kill but you know it it, it is sad when you do see those fields where um, you know, all you see is dirt and a little bit of wheat that, that always makes my heart a little bit, uh, sad. Well, and we, we, even, even though in my area, we might hit that 200 bushel, you know, there's certainly areas in Washington state where they're lucky in a bad year to get 10 or 12 bushels to the acres. So I, I know how that goes, but, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. but uh, anything else you'd like to add, uh, Jim, before uh, we go ahead and sign off? Well, I, I don't think so. I've enjoyed the visit today. Um, uh... Like I say, the Federal Reserve uh, Symposium was most interesting. Uh, I'm certainly no expert in ag labor. Uh, the 
information I was sharing is just things that came up during the presentations, but uh, I thought it was uh, very enlightening. I think most of us involved in ag realize that there's an issue with labor, but this probably brought it home and made it a little clearer than what I anticipated. Only well, other thing I'd add is uh, all in all, I think 2022 is going to be a pretty good year. We've got, we have we have an unbelievable land market. I don't know if it's that way out your way, but here in the Midwest, it just oh. can used to percolate up by, I, I don't, my, my only caution on that, you know, I'm a bit on the conservative side is we raise interest rates, we reprice assets and yep. we yep. Be repricing assets from the stock market to the bond market, right on down at some level farmland. So I don't know how it's going to shake out, but all in all, 2022 ought to be a pretty good year for producers. Yeah, actually I was on AgriTalk earlier this week and, uh, that was one of the questions they were asking me because I had done a blog post on it a couple of weeks ago about, and I was looking at it purely from a math standpoint. I was saying that, you know, if, if you value land and the investor is demanding a, let's say, a 3% rate of return and they're getting $300, you know, that equates to a $10,000 value. But if instead of a 3% rate of return, now they want a six percent rate of return and they're still getting that three hundred dollars per acre suddenly that value instead of being ten thousand dollars an acre might be six thousand dollars an acre or whatever the math is and and we know it's not purely elastic i mean there's hey the the farmers coveted that that quarter section for the last 30 years you know he's going to buy it no matter what you know and if there's multiple farmers that covet that land you know that's going to push it up but Things do tend to revalue themselves, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I agree. It, it's, uh, it's, it's an unknown at this point. Uh, I'm certainly not bearish on ag. I think ag has always had a great looking future. Uh, we just always have to remember that, uh, you know, this too shall pass. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 When we're in a bull market, we always need to remember it's uh, not a bad idea to put away a few things for a rainy day, so to speak, uh, because this this bull market will shift into something else. And yeah, yeah. I think most people in ag are pretty resilient that way. Yeah, yeah. We can always go back to the story of Joseph in the Bible, seven good years followed by seven lean years. So uh, oh, yeah. you know, right yeah. now, let's take advantage of the good years and get ready for the lean years. So that's, that's what we have to do. So, yep, I agree. I agree. Okay. Just operate like it's going to be this way forever because it's yeah. not. <laughs> okay. Anytime people say that, that's the sign of the top usually. So, <laughs> oh yeah. But, yeah. Okay. Yep, really well, Jim, thanks for taking time to be with us. Uh, again, this is the uh, Farm CPA podcast that was presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. Okay, thank you, Paul. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness.